This podcast is brought to you by everythingvoluntary.com. You probably already shop at Amazon. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark my special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Okay, looks like we're about ready to go. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Michael Humer. I'm a professor in the philosophy department at Colorado in Boulder. Um, I recently wrote a book about political authority and the philosophical problems surrounding it. Thank you. And I think... It's terrific. Yeah, and that... Buy his book. Yeah, um, and uh, I'll have your check in the mail shortly. Okay. Um, I, yeah, yeah I, I plant people in the audience periodically. So. Um, so I guess that's how I got invited here. All right, so... And now I'm going to talk about the psychology of authority. And there's a chapter in the book about that, which some people have told me was the most interesting. So that's why I'm going to talk about it. Okay, uh, by the way, that's a picture of authority. That's the only picture I could uh, that uh, illustrates the idea of authority but is not emotionally disturbing. Okay, overview of what I'm going to talk about. So uh, overall, in, in the book, I have these two theses. I claim that no state has legitimate authority, and I claim that the best social system is anarcho-capitalism. Okay, there's a long argument for this, which, of course, I can't give now. You have to, that's why you have to buy the book. Um, it's something like 350 pages, and it's not redundant and repetitive like most philosophy books. Uh, and it's not repetitive either. Okay. <laughs> All right, but now after I make this case, um, a couple of things that you might, you might wonder about. So most people believe that there is such a thing as political authority. Most people believe that at least some states are legitimate. And so, is the fact that this is such a widespread belief some reason for thinking that maybe I'm wrong and maybe the other people are right? Maybe it's more likely that I'm mistaken than that all of these other people are, that almost everyone else is. That's one thing you might think. And you might also worry, some people worry that it might be dangerous to undermine the belief in authority, that maybe it will lead to social chaos or something. Um, people will start disobeying the law and, and things like that. And Okay. Yeah, now, now some people here might think that's a wonderful result. So, but anyway, so it was because of that that I decided I, should, I needed to have a discussion of um, some psychological issues. Okay, and so, and that's what, that's what I'm here to address. And so I'm going to argue that, no, the fact that most people believe in political authority is not a strong reason for thinking that I'm wrong. And also that it's not um, socially harmful to undermine the belief in authority. It's actually socially beneficial. Okay, so main part of the case is people have a lot of pro-authority biases. That's what I'm going to talk about. Um, there are a lot of psychological factors that bias people in favor of accepting authority when, even when it's illegitimate. All right, so um, there's a phenomenon known, as, known somewhat ironically as social proof. This refers to the phenomenon that uh, people tend to be convinced by something simply because a lot of other people say it or believe it. Okay, so, and there's some illustrations of this. So the, the fact that there is such a thing as culture in the first place, just the existence of cultures, is an illustration of this phenomenon. 
people around the world in different societies tend to think that the practices of their society are correct. Usually they think their practices are the best of all possible practices, no matter what they are. And this is true even you know, in societies that have radically different practices. So really the only way to explain it is to say that there's some very strong psychological tendency to believe that whatever way things are being done in your society, whatever it is, to believe that that's the best. Um, there's an interesting psychological experiment by Solomon Ash. That's a picture of Solomon Ash, who was a social psychologist. Um, this experiment was done some decades ago. Um, I think I have, yeah, I have this picture. So here's how the experiment goes. You have a group of people, like 20 people in a room, and you tell them they're supposed to, they're going to look at pictures like this, and you're supposed to judge which of the lines on the right is closest in length to the one on the left. Now, unknown to the subjects in the experiment, one of the people in the room is just a regular naive subject, and the other 19 people in the room have all been solicited by the experimenter to give the wrong answer to the question. Okay, so the experimenter talked to the 19 people before they came into the room and said, when you see this picture, answer B. Okay. Right, so, and the experiment, the people are told, okay, it's an experiment on visual perception or something, but it's actually an experiment to see what you would do if everybody else around you gives the wrong answer, okay? So what happens is the majority of people will at least sometimes give the wrong answer just under the influence of other people giving the wrong answer. All right, now, um, and these are questions on which the reliability is normally 99%. Normally, only 1% of people make a mistake in these questions when they're not being influenced by other people giving the wrong answer, right? But most people will sometimes make a mistake. Okay, now, by the way, um, there were interviews afterwards of the subjects to find out why they had given wrong answers. Um, a few, a very small number of subjects appeared to think afterwards that there was nothing wrong, that they had given the correct answer and that it looked correct to them at the time. However, more of the subjects thought, um, well, they knew that the answer was wrong, but they just didn't want to piss off other people in the room. Okay. However, the most common explanation was the subjects thought, well, it looked like, you know, it looked like answer B was wrong to me, but I figured that since so many other people said that, I was probably wrong. Okay. Now, um, incidentally, it's an interesting question what you ought to think if you're in a scenario like this. Um, it's not at all clear that the people were making a mistake in making that inference. If 19 people in the room see one thing and one person sees something different, well, then the one person's probably wrong. But actually, what you should really think in a situation like this is that there's some kind of hoax, which is, in fact, what was going on. <laughs> if something like that happens to you, it actually is probably a conspiracy, which is what it was. All right. But anyway, but the important thing is um, this phenomenon explains kind of, it, can, it doesn't explain why the belief in authority originated, but it can explain how the belief perpetuates itself. And it can explain why the belief, once it becomes common, can sort of make itself more common, right? So if the majority of people believe it, then they can influence the minority to go along with them. Okay, there's a closely related phenomenon which I call status quo bias. This is just the bias in favor of the current practices of your own society. So there's a slight distinction from the previous one. The previous idea was that you tend to believe the things that other people around you believe, 
And here now I'm saying you tend to judge the things that other people around you are doing to be permissible. Okay, um, and again, that explains why there are cultures around the world where the, all the people think that their culture is the best. Okay, there's another psychological phenomenon known as cognitive dissonance. Um, the theory here is that if there's a conflict between different cognitions that you have, if there's, a if there's a conflict between your beliefs or a conflict between something you believe and your actions, then you're going to experience an unpleasant emotional state known as cognitive dissonance. Uh, people don't like this conflict, and therefore people will attempt to reduce or eliminate the conflict by adjusting their beliefs. Okay, and so and sometimes this will be they will adjust their beliefs in an irrational way. Now it's particularly unpleasant if there's a conflict between your self-image and what you know about your own behavior. So, for example, if you believe yourself to be kind and compassionate, but then you find yourself hurting other people, then you're going to experience cognitive dissonance. And so then what you do is you adjust your beliefs to try to reduce the dissonance. For example, you try to convince yourself that you're not really hurting other people, and then you won't experience the dissonance. Or you try to come up with some theory that explains why a kind person can hurt other people sometimes. All right. Okay, now, most people, well, the overwhelming majority of members of society have obeyed the state on many occasions. Most people are obeying most of the laws most of the time. Now, uh, most of the laws you don't want to break in the first place, but at least some of the laws are re requiring very large sacrifices of you. So you might, for example, be paying a third of your income or more if you're wealthy. All right, but fairly typical that you're paying a third of all of your income to the government. I don't think that you would choose to do that voluntarily if it, if it was not legally required. So some sort of explanation is required as to why you obey the state, right? Even in circumstances in which you really would not want to and it would not be in your interests um, if you weren't forced to. Now here are some unflattering explanations for why you obey the state. Maybe you're afraid of being punished. So if you don't pay the taxes or you know, if you fill out the false tax return so you get the refund from the IRS, they might audit you. And then they might do things like seizing your assets or they might take your house or something like that. Um, secondly, you might just have this instinct of conformity. Well, since you're, here, since you're here at the Pork Fest, you probably don't have as much of that instinct as most people. But um, an explanation for why people obey is, well, they look around, other people around them are obeying them. They just have an instinct to conform to what the rest of their society is expecting of them. And a third explanation is there's an instinctive deference to people who are powerful. And this isn't quite the same as the other two. It's just that if somebody is powerful, then that person becomes more charismatic and you just feel this desire to do their will. Okay, now, these are possible explanations for why people obey the state. But these are not very flattering explanations. These are not explanations that you would like to believe about yourself. People don't like to believe that they are constantly in fear of someone else and that that's driving their actions. They don't like to believe that they're just blindly conforming to the rest of their society, and they don't like to believe that, well, they're just conforming because a powerful person told them to do something. Uh, what we would rather believe is something like, well, I'm very conscientious, and I have this duty to obey the law, and I have this strong s social spirit. I care about society, and so out of, out of duty to society, I sacrificed, you know, I paid 
$20,000 last year because I'm very conscientious and I want to help society, okay? Well, that's a nicer thing to believe about yourself. So my theory is um, people come up with these rationalizations. Okay, and, and it seems to me that the philosophical theories that philosophers come up with to, to justify state authority, they're kind of designed to prop up the more flattering explanations of obedience rather than the unflattering explanations. Okay, another factor, um, again, apropos of explaining why people obey the state, um, the government appeals to a number of emotional and aesthetic reactions and not just cognitive reactions. In other words, the people who defend the state's authority don't just, they don't give you arguments. I was going to say they don't just give you arguments, but usually they don't give you arguments at all for why you should obey them or why their authority is legitimate, but they try to appeal to aesthetics and emotions. So what I have in mind is, okay, there, there are all of these symbols that the government has, including these uniforms, and it's supposed to make these people look special like they have authority. If these people were just dressed in, like, T-shirts and jeans, it just, just wouldn't have the same emotional impact on you. Okay, by the way, there is a psychology experiment on the effect of a uniform on obedience. What it was was the, the psychologists... Um, they, had, they put a made-up uniform on someone. And then, the, so it's a uniform that doesn't correspond to any actual office of any government or anything, right? But the person in the uniform goes out on the street, and then somebody's passing by, and the person in the uniform says, look, this person is overparked at this parking meter. Give them a nickel. Okay, and then the question is, the experiment is to see whether the person will give the nickel. Okay, and then... And then you put somebody who doesn't have a uniform who does the same script, okay? And so the result is people are more likely to obey the person with the uniform than the person without. Okay, um, we have various rituals. This is an, an example of one of these rituals, the swearing-in ceremony. So notice that the president puts his left hand on the Bible, and then he holds the right hand like this. Why is he doing this? Like, this is like a pointless thing. This, what, is it, what are you accomplishing by putting your hand like that? <laughs> Okay, and then, and then the whole ceremony is he's supposed to, he, it's called the oath of office, right? He's giving a promise, and he's promising to faithfully discharge the office of president and to preserve, defend, whatever, the Constitution of the United States. What's the function of this? Now, you might think, well, the function is, you know, we're getting a promise from him to obey the Constitution, so now he's going to obey the Constitution. <laughs> because he promised to do it, right? But if there was somebody who had it in mind to serve unfaithfully or to violate the Constitution, it's very unlikely that his memory of having promised not to do those things is going to stop. <laughs> so I think what it really is, is it's for the audience. It makes the people feel good. Yeah, it makes the people who are watching feel like something special has happened. Now, in primitive societies, they do rituals like this, I mean, it's not this ritual, but they do rituals when power is transferred from one person to another. And in the primitive societies, they actually believe that it's some kind of magical process. Um, in our society, we wouldn't say that there's like a magical transfer of power, but we do kind of have that feeling. Like this ritual makes it so that now he's the president, right? And at the end of saying the oath of office, then the Supreme Court justice uh, usually it's the Supreme Court justice who's administering it. Then he, then he addresses the president-elect as Mr. President. 
right, for the first time. And so you see that by doing this thing, he turned into a president. <laughs> okay, this is an example of how architecture is used to uh, emotional effect. This is a picture of the Capitol building in Denver, Colorado. Um, now, I just point out a few things about this. The most obvious thing to point out is notice the stairs leading up. The thing is placed on a hill. This is very inconvenient. Why didn't they flatten the hill so that we didn't have to climb all these stairs? <laughs> well, actually, I think they want you to have to look up to the building, right? Uh, when you get up there, then there's a statue of a man holding a gun, a soldier, which reminds you of the power of the state and the people who have sacrificed their lives, presumably, to defend the state. Um, I'm not sure if you can make it out, but to the left and the right, there are these cannons. Um, to the left and right of the stairway, those are non-functional, of course. So they're not there to defend the capital from an attack. <laughs> Again, they're there for purely symbolic purpose. Uh, you have the style of architecture. There are these big, solid, um, concrete pillars. Why are they there? Um, I think they're not actually there to hold up the roof. They're there for aesthetic effect. It's supposed to symbolize the stability and strength of the government, and it also kind of refers to tradition, because it's kind of this traditional style. It's, it's, a, it's a group of broken temple, and it's designed after the Catholic church. Yeah. Yeah. He, he said that uh, it's like a Greek or Roman temple, right? It's kind of like that. Um, now, I don't have a picture of the inside, but when you get inside, the ceilings are much higher than any human being needs. Um, it's two or three times taller than a normal human being. Why is that? The whole thing is designed to make you feel small and powerless. Right? And by the way, there are many... Sorry, I'll just go back for a second, because I don't want you to read that yet. Okay. Uh, there are many buildings in Denver that are a lot bigger than that, but there are a few that make you feel as small as that building does. <laughs> Right? When you go inside, because, you know, they're like skyscrapers, okay? But you don't feel small because when you go inside, everything is normal human size. When you go in this one, the ceiling is, you know, 12 feet or whatever, 15 feet tall. Okay, um, another example of political aesthetics is there's a special kind of language that uh, the government uses. And it's so distinctive that it's referred to as legalese, as if it were another language, right? So this is an, an example. This is kind of a joke, but... Um, I am herewith returning the stipulation to dismiss in the above entitled manner, the same being duly executed by me. <laughs> okay, all right, well, whatever that means. Um, the, this kind of language has certain functions. So one is that um, it's a little bit confusing to the person who's listening, and because you're confused, it's a lot harder for you to dispute what's being said. Um, you think that the person who's talking must be really smart and sophisticated because they're using this language that's really hard to understand. They have these long words and the long constructions and so on. Um, it also kind of drains the emotional force out of what's being said. So it makes it so that you don't feel strong emotions when you read it. And that's a benefit. It's, it's both for the reader and for the writer. <laughs> that is... Um, one function is to make it so that the people who read the laws don't feel emotional about them so that they won't get upset about the fact that they're being coerced. And the other function is so that the people who are writing the laws and the people who are enforcing the laws also don't have strong emotional reactions to it. Because normally, um, if you're responsible for making coercive threats against other people and forcing them to obey your will, 
And especially if you're ordering people to be punished severely for not obeying, normally that would be an emotional experience. Normally, most people would be upset by having to do that, right? Or be upset by doing that, whether they had to or not. Um, but you can kind of drain that emotional impact out, and you can make the coercers feel better about themselves by, having, by dressing it up in this language that makes it kind of confusing. Um, by the way, another function is, of course, that um, since you can't understand the law, you have to hire lawyers to explain it to you. Um, and by the way, and you might wonder, well, is that really, like, is that really the motivation of the government? Um, just as an aside, well, the government is basically run by lawyers. The president is a lawyer right now. All of the Supreme Court justices are lawyers. And the most common occupation for legislators is also lawyer. So it's a government of lawyers. And so they just write stuff, you know. Uh, it turns out that Interestingly enough, that lawyers are doing really well in our society. <laughs> okay, this is an actual law. So the previous example of legalese was not an actual law. It was a joke from the Internet. But this is uh, actual text from the United States Code. Um, admittedly, I might have been a little bit unfair in selecting the example because this is from the Internal Revenue Code, which is known for being one of the most incomprehensible parts of the law. All right, so if two or more members of the same family acquire interests in any property described in paragraph one in the same transaction or a series of related transactions, the person or persons acquiring the term interest in such property shall be treated as having acquired the entire property and then transferred to the other persons the interest acquired by such other persons in the transaction or series of transactions. Such transfer shall be treated as made in exchange for the consideration, if any, provided by such other persons for the acquisition of their interests in such property. Okay. Anyone know what that means? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Uh, yeah. Well, probably means they're robbing you. I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> um, okay. And by the way, you know, I have a PhD in philosophy. So if I can't understand this, not very many people can either. Um, you know, again, you have to hire a lawyer. Okay. Um, by the way, you know, that first sentence, I think, is about, you know, three times longer than a normal sentence. Okay, so the effect is that it creates an impression of sophistication and intelligence on the part of the people who deal with these law things. Uh, it makes it difficult to challenge an idea because you can't understand what they're saying. And it drains the emotional impact out of reading the law or enforcing the law. All right, so it makes the citizens be more, have more orderly feelings, and it makes coercion easier for the coercers. Okay, this is another interesting psychological phenomenon known as Stockholm Syndrome. Um, have you heard of Stockholm Syndrome? Okay. Fair number of you. So it's named after a bank robbery that occurred in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. This is a picture from the bank robbery. Um, the, the robbers took several people hostage and held them in the bank vault for, I think it was five days or something. And during the crisis, the hostages started to become emotionally attached to the kidnappers started to share their perspectives. So at one point, they thought that the kidnappers were protecting them from the police. At the end of the siege, when the police were putting in tear gas, um, the hostages refused to leave without the kidnappers. They had to go out together because they were afraid that if they went first, then the police would shoot the kidnappers. So the hostages insisted on coming out with their kidnappers to protect them from the police. Uh, now, and there was one point during the crisis when one of the kidnappers was thinking about shooting one of the hostages in the leg in order to convince the police that he was serious. And at the time, the hostage thought 
that the kidnapper was being kind because he was only going to shoot him in the leg and not kill him. Could have killed him, <laughs> right? Okay, now, years later, so that was recounted by the hostage years later, at which point he said, that's crazy. <laughs> Why did I think he was kind? He took me hostage. He was going to shoot me. So, okay, but when you're actually in the situation, you feel differently from how you would feel afterwards, and you feel the people who are in the situation feel differently from anyone outside the situation. The people who are outside the bank robbery think, well, that's crazy. These are terrible people. All right, so uh, there's another case. There was the famous case of Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by a left-wing terrorist group uh, around 1974. And um, she was abused by this group, but she ultimately joined them and helped them to, um, to commit at least one bank robbery. So this is a picture of her in her new guise as a member of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Okay, she was subsequently liberated and then claimed to have been brainwashed by the group. Okay, there, and there are many other examples of this Stockholm Syndrome. Um, you know, fascinating and kind of um, disturbing examples. Okay, why does this occur? So here's a hypothesis. Um, in our past, in the history of our species, it was very common for some people to have a lot of power over others. If you're in that situation and you're the powerless person, your survival and certainly your well-being may depend upon pleasing the powerful person. Now, if you're constantly resisting the powerful person and angry at them and telling them that they're being unjust, you are unlikely to please them. <laughs> and they are likely to retaliate against you, in fact. They're likely to maybe kill you or at minimum make sure that you get fewer resources than other people. On the other hand, if you're pleasing to the powerful people, then you're likely to survive and maybe get more resources. So the, hypo the hypothesis is that we might have an evolutionary adaptation to please people who are in power. How do you please the people who are in power? Well, you kind of flatter them, you take their perspective, you view what they're doing as being legitimate, right? And sort of, sort of try to share their values. Okay, so for the hypothesis, this mechanism, if there is such an adaptation, it might be in play in our attitudes towards the state. The state also has great power over people, much as the kidnappers did in those examples. In fact, the power that the state has is astonishing. It's much greater than any kidnapper. The, the United States government, in fact, probably has the power to kill everyone, literally everyone at once, <laughs> right? No, no agency has ever had that power in the past, right? You know, before, whatever, 50 years ago. Okay, so, um, and it's very difficult to escape from this. The only way that you can, so the people in the um, Stockholm cases, they're being held captive by someone and they can't get away. Now, you might think, well, I, I could get away from the state, but really the only way is to either go to another state or to go to Antarctica. Um, now, I know that there are some plans like the seasteading plan, but so far that has not yet happened, so... Um, or, you know, maybe you can go to Mars, okay. The options are limited, <laughs> let's just say. So it's kind of like you're in the bank vault with the robbers, and the only way to get away is go to the bank vault right over there with a different group of robbers, okay. <laughs> so um, in that situation, you're just in those people's power. Okay, now I'm going to go on to talk about, well, why the institution of authority is dangerous. So all of that was about explaining why people 
obey authority and why they tend to regard authority as being legitimate even if it's not. Okay, now by the way, what I've said doesn't show that there's no legitimate authority. I haven't given that argument. That argument is given in, in the whole first half of the book. Um, but what I've argued is that there are explanations for why people would believe in authority even if it were not legitimate. So that means that the fact that so many people believe in, uh, believe in authority is not a strong reason for thinking that it's legitimate, right? Because we can explain their belief by these psychological mechanisms that are not reliable indicators of the truth. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about why the institutions of political authority are potentially dangerous. Um, there's another interesting psychological experiment, a very famous experiment known as the Stanford Prison Experiment. This was conducted by Philip Zimbardo, who was a social psychologist over at Stanford. Uh, he decided to do a simulation of prison life on the Stanford University campus. So, you know, he had this fake prison, and he recruited volunteers, students, they were all male, to be either guards or prisoners, right? They were randomly assigned. Uh, he got more applicants than he needed, and he screened them according to psychological tests. So he gave psychological tests to the people to verify that they were all as psychologically normal as he could find. Okay. So he picked, only, he picked what he considered the most psychologically normal people, and then he randomly assigned them to be either guards or prisoners. At first, no one wanted to be a guard. They all wanted to be prisoners. So he randomly assigned half of them to be guards. Okay. And basically what happened is that, um, in short, the guards turned into assholes. Right? <laughs> and progressively became bigger assholes as the week wore on. It was supposed to last for two weeks, but uh, Zimbardo cut it off after a week because he felt that the guards were becoming too abusive and it was unethical to continue, <laughs> right? So, but, you know, they'd be, um, they'd be ordering the prisoners to do push-ups with somebody else sitting on their back. They'd be insulting the prisoners constantly, not letting them sleep, so constantly waking them up during the night. Um, putting them in solitary confinement in a broom closet, something like that. Um, it's kind of interesting, by the way, if you think about it, um, it's interesting to think about why the, the prisoners put up with it. Because, you know, these are not real guards, and they know that. They're not going to get in trouble for refusing to do what the guard says, right? Why didn't they just say, fuck you? No. <laughs> I'm not going in the closet. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, I don't know, but it's just like because the guards were designated as authority figures, oh, I guess we have to do what they say. So, um, not sure about that. I think so. I think Zimbardo gave minimal instruction. Uh, he did instruct the guards that they're not allowed to do physical violence, and they do have to feed the prisoners. <laughs> so, um, okay. Uh, there's another famous experiment. This is really the most famous experiment on attitudes about authority. It's Stanley Milgram's experiment that was conducted at Yale University in the 1970s. Um, well, I have a video clip. Now, I'm, I'm going to explain, in case there's some of you who don't know what the experiment is, what it is. So um, there's an ad in the newspaper that says, we're looking for subjects for an experiment on the effects of punishment on learning. Okay, so you volunteer, you go to the office. There's another volunteer who's sitting there, you know, who looks like another student like yourself. Um, and the experimenter comes out in this white lab coat, and he explains, okay, so we're doing this experiment on the effect of punishment on learning. So what's going to happen is one of you is going to be a teacher, and the other one is going to be a learner. And uh, the teacher is going to read these pairs of words to the learner. The learner is supposed to remember the pairs. 
So the learner is supposed to remember which word is paired with which other word. The teacher is then going to quiz the learner. So the teacher will say a word, and then the learner is supposed to respond with the word that was paired with it. Okay. When the learner makes a mistake, the teacher is going to administer an electric shock to the learner. Each time the learner makes a mistake, the voltage of the shock is going to go up by 15 volts. Starts from 15 volts and it goes up from there. And you just have to continue until the learner learns all of the word pairs. Right. All right, so you sit down and um, they, you, know, they, you draw straws and it turns out that you're the teacher. Okay. So you watch the experimenter strap the learner down in a chair and then attach electrodes to him, to his wrists or something, um, which are connected to this shock generator. And so then you're seated in front of the shock generator, and um, there are these switches for you to, to press to give electric shocks of different voltages. It goes from 15 volts all the way up to 450. And then there are these qualitative labels that say things like slight shock, moderate shock, going up to danger, severe shock, and then under, under the last two, it says XXX. <laughs> right, so, all right, so you get started. And, okay, and by the way, the experimenter gives you a sample electric shock to convince you that it's real and so that you know what it feels like. Right, so, and also so that afterwards, nobody can say that the subjects didn't know how much 450 volts was or something like that. So, they, so that the subjects knew what it felt like. Um, okay, so, and you're, you're administering the test, you're quizzing this learner, and he's just not getting it, <laughs> right? He's just, his mistakes are, his answers are just like chance, right? He's, he's only getting, he's just like randomly guessing, okay? And so you just have to keep shocking him, right? He's getting like a quarter of them right, which is just pure chance, all right? Um, you're going up, you go up to 170 volts or something. The learner is, you know, starting to make noises of pain, like, ow, ow! Right? At some point, you know, like, he's screaming in pain. At some point, he's, he says, let me out of here. I'm done with this, right? Um, and then you say something like, uh, you know, he wants to be let out. Maybe we should stop. Okay. And the experimenter in the white lab coat comes over to you and says, no, you must continue with the experiment. All right, so if you protest, there are four prompts. If you try to stop, the experimenter says, please continue. And then if you try, try to stop again, the experiment requires that you continue. <laughs> and it's absolutely essential that you continue. And then he says, you have no other choice. You must go on. If you continue to protest after four prompts, then the experimenter goes, okay, we can stop the experiment now. <laughs> All right, so... Um, now, the real experiment is to see how far people would go. How, how high of a shock would they deliver? All right. So, um, the subject demands to be released. Experimenter says, please continue. Okay, so you continue shocking him. <laughs> and uh, at some point, you know, he says, uh, my heart's bothering me. <laughs> please continue. <laughs> Don't worry. The shocks are not dangerous. <laughs> right. Um, then he says, look, I'm not giving any more answers. He refuses to answer anymore because he insists that he's no longer part of the experimenter. And then, no, no longer part of the experiment, and the scientist comes over and says, 
well, you have to treat the absence of an answer as a wrong answer and just continue with the experiment. <laughs> so, refuses to answer, fine, <laughs> you know, silence counts as wrong, right. Um, you know, then pounds on the, the learners in the room next door to you, so, and then you hear them kicking on the wall, then at some point he just goes completely silent. Okay, and so there's a suggestion that he's either unconscious now or possibly dead. <laughs> but, you know, again, dying counts as a wrong answer, so <laughs> you just have to keep shocking him. <laughs> so, all right, so it goes up to 450 volts. Um, you, you administer the 450 volt shock. Then you go, okay, I'm out, of, uh, I'm out of shock level, so now I can stop, right? And the scientist says, no, just continue using the 450 volts, <laughs> okay? Uh, so you do it again. Now, after you've done the 450 volt shock three times, then the experimenter says, okay, we can stop now. And then he tells you what was really happening, okay? Um, now, I have a video clip, so let's see. It was... Scary ghost. Is this incorrect? 225 volts. I mean, it's a classic example of what Milgram showed. Somebody who, at face value, poses no threat to anybody can, in these kinds of circumstances, proceed to the point of inflicting severe levels of pain. Is it A cup? B wall, C aeroplane, or D lampshade? You, you have to treat the absence of response as a wrong answer and just continue the procedure. Okay, okay no response is wrong answer. 390 votes. No sound. So now he's gone silent. So after the protest from the learner in the other room, the idea is now that the learner goes silent. So potentially there is the idea that these shocks have actually either rendered the learner unconscious or possibly even killed them. C chain or D bicycle. So she says, we've killed him. <laughs> the experimenter says, you know, continue. He's not responding. <laughs> He's not responding, so it counts as a wrong answer, right? Okay, so, um, and then she just continues, and you know, she seems kind of happy about it. <laughs> no. uh, okay, now, the reason why this happened was not that the subjects in the experiment were sadistic and they like electrocuting people. Uh, nobody would have electrocuted these people, or hardly anyone would have electrocuted the people if it was um, solely up to them. So if the experimenter says, you can use whatever voltage you want, then they stay on the lowest voltage. Okay. Um, and, and in most cases, the subject protests multiple times during the procedure, but when the experimenter just keeps saying, no, you have to go on, then they go back to the task. So they try to stop, but ultimately they obey. 
Now, Milgram described this experiment to an audience, um, an audience of lay people and psychologists, and asked them what they thought would happen. Okay. On average, the average prediction was that fewer than 1% of people would go all the way to the 450 volts. The psychologists thought that it would be more like one in a thousand. Because, you know, that's like sadistic, psychopathic behavior, right? Electrocuting somebody just because they got the wrong answers, you know. Um, okay, it turned out that actually about two-thirds of people go all the way. Right? They went all the way to the, the 450 volts three times before the experimenter said that they could stop. So, um, what it is is, well, it's obedience to authority. They feel like they have to obey the authority figure. Okay, now there's a real world example of obedience to authority. Um, it, the people in the Milgram experiment, if that had been real, they would have been murderers. Like, the guy would have been dead. Um, there, well, there are real world examples where Actu people actually committed murder under orders of other people. I use the example of the My Lai massacre. This is a picture of it. It was a massacre that occurred during the Vietnam War. There was a, the, this small Vietnamese village of My Lai where the soldiers went in and they basically executed everyone. Men, women, and children. Um, civilians. And um, the soldiers explained their actions by saying that they were following orders. And I give this example partly because, okay, you all know about the Nazis, but I want to illustrate the fact that this can happen also in a democratic society and a place like the United States. Well, it wasn't in the United States, but it was the U.S. military. Okay, now what happened, let's see if I have, yeah, okay. This is Lieutenant William Kelly in 1971. Um, he is the only person who was ever punished for the My Lai massacre. So he was the immediate commanding officer. The soldiers said that they were following his orders, and then they got off. He said that he was following the orders of his superior, Captain Medina, but Medina was never prosecuted. I think he died during the war or something. Um, anyway, L William Kelly was the only person who was ever punished for this. So, um, and he ultimately wound up serving three years under house arrest for his role in murdering something like 300 people. Okay, now, um, that is an illustration of another interesting fact about this. So the first interesting fact is the amazing degree of obedience to authority, that people will obey an authority figure even to the point of transgressing the most serious moral constraints, to the point of murdering innocent people. Also interesting is what happens after the fact, that usually there is minimal punishment. Um, most of the people who are involved get off scot-free, and if anyone's punished, they're going to get much, much less punishment than they would have done if they had not been working for the government. All right now, um, okay, I already said that stuff. Most people obey wrongful orders. Um, the other interesting thing is when somebody is, um, when the authorities are abusing their power, some people participate, some people don't, but almost no one ever tries to stop it. So, for example, in the Stanford prison experiment, not all of the guards were assholes, but the ones who were not didn't do anything to stop the ones who were. In the My Lai massacre, there were some soldiers who were not participating in the shooting. They were you know, going off in another place. So they wouldn't have to participate. But they didn't actually try to stop the shooting from happening. Now, there was one exception. There was a helicopter team that landed. Um, the, the pilot was Hugh Thompson. He got out and he told his gunner that if the, so there's this group of Vietnamese villagers in this house 
And so he lands to try to pick them up and save them. And he told his gunners that if the American soldiers try to fire on them, then try to fire on the villagers, then the helicopter team should open fire on the soldiers. And so luckily, nobody opened fire. And uh, he was able to take the villagers out of the house. And he flew about six people to safety. Those were the only people who, who survived the village. Okay, But for his role, um, he was subjected to um, attacks. In the United States, one congressman said that Hugh Thompson was the only person in the whole affair who deserved to be punished. He got death threats. He got dead animals left on his doorstep. So the, the heroism of the people who stand up to the authority who is abusing its power is usually not appreciated. It was appreciated many years later. So like decades later, then he was given a medal and he was invited to speak at Annapolis and West Point. Um, other lesson is the government will usually try to cover it up. Uh, the government tried to cover up the My Lai massacre until it got out to the press. And that was the only reason why they even prosecuted one guy. Um, now, Thompson reports that other soldiers told him that, quote, oh, that stuff happened all the time. So My Lai was not the only place where innocent people were massacred. It's just the one that got out to the news and became famous. There were probably many incidents that were similar to that. Um, usually, usually the government tries to cover it up, and usually, presumably, they're successful. All right, we can't assume that all cover-ups fail. So there are probably multiple government abuses that have been successfully covered up that we don't even know about. OK, so my point, my point in giving this whole talk, first, that human beings have very strong pro-authority biases. There are psychological factors that bias us in favor of accepting authority, even when it's illegitimate. And for that reason, the, intui the intuitions that most people have about authority, intuitions about the United States government being legitimate, et cetera, are not reliable. I haven't shown that they're wrong, but I'm just saying that they're not strong evidence um, because of these biases. Second lesson, the belief in authority is dangerous. So even if I'm wrong in saying that no authority is legitimate, I'm probably doing a favor for society because most people's belief in authority is probably just much, much stronger than justified. Even if there is some legitimacy to the state, it's probably much, much less than most people think. So I'm probably providing a useful corrective. Right, even if I'm mistaken. Okay, um, authority figures are prone to abuse of power. This is why the belief in authority is dangerous. Because once you establish these authority figures, they are very likely to abuse their power. And the Stanford Prison Experiment shows that it's not just because bad people get into power, it's because power makes people bad. As Lord Acton said, because power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, the subjects... The people who are subjected to authority are prone to blind obedience. They will typically obey the authority almost no matter what the authority tells them to do. Right? I mean, if they're going to obey to the point of committing murder, it's hard to see what they wouldn't do. Maybe if the authority tells you to kill yourself, then you wouldn't do it. Maybe that's the one thing. Okay. Um, and the government can't be trusted to police itself because when some government officials are abusing their power, the other ones will look the other way. The ones who are not abusing their power still won't do anything to stop the ones who are, and they will probably join in helping to cover it up. Right? So when you put all these factors together, you see that having this whole, this whole idea that some people have authority over others is really dangerous. Okay, now this is further reading. Um, there's Stanley Milgram's interesting book, Obedience to Authority. It talks about his experiment and just a whole bunch of different variations on it and other things that he found out about 
what affects people's obedience. Uh, there's Philip Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect. That's about the Stanford prison experiment and a bunch of other evidence that um, it's about the, the situational factors surrounding a person that influence their capacity to do evil. Uh, finally, of course, most importantly, there's my book, The Problem of Political Authority, which you should all buy. Um, and uh, and it, ta- it, it includes the chapter about psychology, also explains why all, all political authority is illegitimate, and explains why anarcho-capitalism is the best system. Okay, so now we have a lot of time for questions. Um, yes, now somebody has asked me that you should, you should take a microphone to ask your question so it will be recorded. Yes, so give microphones to people. As it stands, there's a missing half to your argument. That is, you've shown reason to believe that belief in authority can have very bad effects. But someone on the other side could say, well, yes, that's true, but the absence of that belief has even worse effects, and therefore, on net, it's desirable. So it does seem to me that your conclusion is stronger than your argument so far justifies. Yeah, so what I need to do is, well... I can, re- I can refer to the person who says that to your book about anarcho-capitalism or the second half of mine. So, yeah, ba- basically, you have, to, you have to make the case that anarchy is not really that terrible. But, yeah, that's right. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we, as a group, we've laughed at the gullibility of the subjects in the uh, experiment, and that's because many of us have just become a- aware of it. But uh, when I first became aware of it, and even today... I have a fear within myself that I might have partook of that, or if something comes up in the future, that I might not back down. Yeah, that's good. Now, uh, one, one important point is I think that um, knowing about the experiment makes it less likely that you would. Like if you'd never heard of it and you never heard anything about authorities abusing their power, then you probably would obey the authority when they were abusing their power. Um, but I think the people who actually participate in the subject, in the experiment, afterwards they realize that they'd done wrong, and then they probably wouldn't do it again. For instance, you're uh, you're in a group, and the police come in, and they they want to do something. You know, it's not it's not the experiment. If the experiment came up, of course I wouldn't. But it's the unexpected, sudden evidence or or existence of a of a situation at that time. And I hope I will be strong enough to resist that. Yeah, and th- this is a good point. By the way, um, when Milgram asked people, when he described the experiment and asked people what they thought would happen, um, nobody predicted that they themselves would obey the experimenter. Most people predicted that they would stop when the victim demands to be released, and everyone, 100%, predicted that they would stop at least some point before the 450 volts. Which shows that, you know, I mean, not only that people have this very strong obedience to authority, but that we lack self-knowledge, right? So if you think that you wouldn't o- obey, there's a fair chance that you're wrong, right? Um, right? But I think that knowing about, the, knowing about this bias that people have makes you less likely to fall prey to it. So. I'd be really interested if you could disambiguate uh, conformity. Because there's a conformity of, you know, okay, everyone's doing it. And there's also the kind of a conscious conformity that I keep on bumping into. You know, I know this is wrong. I, just, I would just rather be loved than be, than be right. 
You know, so there's a kind of a conscious, and my wife exhibits this all the time, you know, and I go, I go, but how can you be in favor of this? And she goes, I just, you know, I just want to be blended into the group and feel, you know, and, and have them like me. And so I don't know what conformity means. I mean, you, you kind of hand waved past conformity, but that's like, that's like the big obstacle, right? Or it is for me. Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, I could interpret that as, what did I mean by conformity? And then the answer is, I think both of the things you're describing. I mean, those are, sometimes people are conforming because it just seems to them that whatever the people around them are doing is correct. Sometimes it doesn't seem to them that it's correct, but they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want people to be mad at them. I would like to suggest, um, you know, maybe, maybe for the benefit of your wife, that usually people don't really dislike you. I mean, if you, if you disagree with the majority opinion, if you do it in a really rude way, then they will dislike you. But if you do it in a polite way, you know, they might respect you for having your own independent thinking, right? Okay, go ahead. Oh, by the way, great talk. Um, yes, thanks. The, uh, I believe it was Milgram also who did the uniforms experiment, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember, I may be wrong on that, but I do remember distinctly when I read about it that they even tried a milkman's uniform during the course of that experiment, and they found dramatically higher authority compliance even if the uniform was for a milkman, which I thought was pretty amazing. Yeah, that, that's cool. This was at a time when, when milkmen were, recogn were recognizable to most people. Right, yeah. Yeah, if that happened today, maybe it would have a negative effect. Because, well, because today no one would know who a milkman <laughs> was. But. If you were dressed as a milkman, they would assume you were a freak, so you probably, probably would not obey you. Um, what do you think? Most people, uh, judging from the experiment, believe in authority. But what do you think are the main characteristics of someone who doesn't arrive to that conclusion, who refuses to believe in authority? Yeah, well, I'm not sure how to answer that because it seems like, it seems like a self-answering question. <laughs> right, so, I mean, there, there are some people who have a suspicion of authority. Why do they have a suspicion of authority? I don't know. You know, may, maybe there are genetic factors that affect your personality. Now, I think that, um, incidentally, that um, libertarians are much more suspicious of authority than, you know, people with any other political views, kind of obviously. Um, maybe not as obviously. I think that that's the fundamental thing about libertarians. That's a fundamental difference between libertarians and everyone else. Oh, well, I, I see. Well, I was kind of thinking that a lot of people are already kind of suspicious of authority, and then they become libertarian. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I haven't done a, a study, really. So, I'm really curious about the flip side of what you're talking about. And you brought up some of the examples is when you do stand up and you make a very strong statement at the beginning to push back on authority, they tend to cave right away. So when the, the My Lai um, yeah. guy, I mean, they obeyed him. They said, okay. And you brought yeah. up some other examples well, when people said no right away like, and made a strong declarative statement. And even in Milgram, there were some of those people who said no. Yeah, and so, well, it kind of de depends on who you're dealing with. In the case of the, in the Mi Lai case, well, presumably the reason why the other soldiers didn't, con didn't continue to try to kill those particular villagers was that they didn't want to be shot. Like, they saw what was going to happen. It was just going to be this big whatever, bloodbath on both sides. They were happy to shoot the villagers because the villagers were unarmed, but, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that um, challenging the authority figure very directly it depends on who it is, um, but uh, they may react negatively and, you know, just, like, resort to violence, 
right? As a woman, if you're smart and someone's following you down the road in a car and it's dark and it's late, yeah. uh, the best advice I ever got is you turn around, you punch the car and said, bring it on. And they generally go, oh, shit, and they go away. They don't yeah. want problems. Like, the state really yeah. doesn't want problems. Yeah. And if you tell them to go shove it, they generally go, nah, this isn't worth our time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now, yeah, so the thing is, um, I, think that, I think that kind of works on criminals. Most criminals, I guess, if the criminal knows that you can hurt them substantially, then, and, you know, may, maybe they can hurt you too, but, you know, that... That's not really the point, right? Because the criminal just wants to get your stuff without getting hurt or something like that. So you can maybe scare them away. It's much harder to scare the cops away because they're totally confident that they have total power and there's nothing whatsoever that you can do about them, right? And, you know, in our legal system, I think that's kind of true. It's, it's kind of like stacked in favor of them. They can totally abuse their power and get away with it. But. I have a question about difference between authority and political authority. I feel like it was not very addressed, like, for example, church leader, uh, it may be not political, it may be a choice of the people uh, uh, to respect him and to listen to his advice, and advice of church leader or uh, business boss also may be uh, harmful sometimes uh, to person. So it's uh, both authority and there are some <coughs> psychological similarities, but... Uh, I think that for uh, libertarians, it's more interesting to explore like psychological differences between different kinds of authorities and political authority. Yeah, good. So, uh, yeah, periodically people ask me what I think about other kinds of authority. Um, I'm only arguing that political authority is illegitimate. I'm not arguing that all authority is illegitimate. I haven't really thought enough to know what kinds of authority are legitimate. Um, but so, you know, if you're in the workplace and your boss tells you to do something, he's got some kind of authority, um, which you can explain in terms of a, an actual contract theory, in terms of the actual contract that you have as opposed to the mythical social contract. Um, and, yeah, maybe the church leader has some kind of authority, and maybe that's also explained by consent. Now, I think that there are going to be psychological similarities. Maybe the people who have these other kinds of authority are also prone to abuse it. Um, I'm particularly worried by the political authority because, you know, that's the kind that involves threats of violence, and it, it seems more prone to get more out of hand, right? Uh, now, specifically, what, what is political authority? It involves this idea that you get to um, make rules for the rest of society and then use physical violence or threats of violence in order to enforce them, and furthermore, other people are supposed to be obligated to obey you. Right. Uh, so, and most, most kinds of authority are not like that. Right. Okay. Other comments? Oh. Yep. Uh, so, is only the president to blame? Is everyone else just following orders can be excused because of the human condition? <laughs> no. <laughs> what, what did you think I was going to say? Um, yeah, in, in fact, not even the government thinks that. Right? Like, it's even accepted legal doctrine that um, a soldier is obligated to disobey an illegal order. Um, however, whether they'll enforce that or not is another question. Okay, now, I do think that the people who are underneath have um, less responsibility than the person who's on top. And because there are these very strong and kind of natural human tendencies to obey, it would be, it's difficult for most people to resist authority. I'm not saying that gets them off. 
they're still obligated to do it, but I'm saying it's not as bad as the person who's actually initiating the orders. Okay. Hey, uh, I was wondering, do you feel like we're going in the right direction towards more people are uh, questioning authority and questioning the police and, like, whistleblowers such as Bradley Manning that came out and said, look, there was a, you know, a thing that happened and brought awareness to it. Do you feel like um, society in the United States or even worldwide, do you feel like any country is going into the right direction of where we are questioning yeah. things and waking up? Yeah, this is a good question, right? Um, uh, I would like to say yes. Um, so now I will, I will just preface this by saying that, as you know, predictions are difficult, especially of the future. Um, and I, I'm under the impression that the Obama administration is really into cracking down on whistleblowers and people who challenge its authority. Um, kind of on a larger scale, I think that... So, I mean, this, this is one of my things I'd like to think about is... Um, the way that people's values have changed over time. And I think that people's values have made a lot of progress over this, the sweep of human history, particularly in a direction of liberalization. And uh, I, I assume that you will all understand the correct use of liberalization here. <laughs> so, um, and I think that the belief in political authority is, fundamentally, it's an illiberal idea. It's the idea that there's this group of people who are in this kind of morally superior position, they get special rights that other people don't have, and other people have special obligations to them. Um, so there's this kind of inherent moral inequality, and I, that's a very illiberal idea. Uh, and, of course, the political authority involves this threats of violence, which is also um, not in accord with liberal values. So my speculation is, well, eventually we're going to move away from this idea, because the idea really does it's really not correct, and it's really, you know not on the side of liberalism. Yep. Um, first of all, thank you for being somebody with nifty credentials talking about the most important issue in the world. Um, I wanted to th throw in a thing about the, the Milgram experiments because it's really dang depressing and scary. The one light of good news in there was when he did it in a way where somebody else was there, uh, another actor, and said, I'm not doing this. Everybody else said, yeah, me neither. So when they see somebody else disobeying, it, it, it suddenly occurs to people, oh, you mean maybe I can not do what I'm told? So yep. to me, that was the one ray of hope in, in Milgram's stuff. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it turns out, it turns out that uh, other people can influence you, and you only need one person disobeying to make it much more likely that the other people disobey. Um, also, by the way, um, you know, it was, it was only really 63% of the people who obeyed all the way. <laughs> so that's pretty bad. But the other... The other 37% disobeyed at some point. Okay, and, um, you know, you can look at the videos of this. It's kind of entertaining to look at the videos of the Milgram experiment. There's one where the guy just goes, no. <laughs> it's like, what? Why would I do that? <laughs> so, all right, next. Um, yeah, I just wanted to return quickly to the other half of this argument, um, which, you know, which would be what happens when people don't uh, fall under this these superstitions or... Our myth of authority, and I think to be f to be fair to someone who would counter your argument, um, you know, we, we can easily imagine what might happen in the Milgram experiment to, to a person who didn't have an authority figure telling them to shock someone. It's very easiest for to, ima to imagine how we would act in that kind of situation, and then we can extrapolate that and how we might act in other situations. But to be fair, I think 
you could call us largely like domesticated people because we've all been raised in this, you know, culture of this belief and authority. So I think someone who's like considering our ideas would um, might make the claim that like it would be more dangerous for they, they'd have like ideas in their head of like rampant vigilantism and like. Um, you know, Hatfield McCoy situations and like blood feuds and all this kind of stuff. Do you, do you, th- yeah. can you think of any experiments or is it even possible? Yeah, are right. There we, even subjects for experiments that. Right. What we really need up? is an experiment in, in anarcho capitalism. We just need to start a small anarcho capitalist society. Um, look, I, I would say this. It seems to me that even if you think that there is such a thing as legitimate authority, Almost anyone would have to admit that most people have a much stronger disposition to obey authority figures than is justified, right? Like even if you, even the people who defend the idea of political obligations, um, even the people who who think that you have some sort of obligation to obey the law, don't think that it's anywhere near as strong as um, would be needed to justify most people's dispositions, right? Um, So you know my. And it's, it's very unlikely that I'm going to cause society to collapse. What's more likely to happen is that I'm going to just make a very small nudge in the direction, you know, towards more sanity, right? We're already way over on the pro-authority side, you know, further than we should be, even if you actually believe in authority, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, back to the uh, conclusion about um, a predisposition to obey authority. What is known about the origin of that? Where that, where that comes from in human nature or... Yeah. Well, for example, a lot's been um, I mean, a lot's been studied about German German child rearing practices in the century in the nineteenth uh, century and before. Yeah. Well, um, we don't know what the origin is. I just have an evolutionary speculation, right? Which is that well, in the past, when you defied the powerful person, he did unpleasant things to you, and that resulted in you having less. Re- of success in the future, right? And so our ancestors who were pleasing to authority figures did better than the ones who were displeasing to the authority figures. No. Um, I have a question you, for the audience because you had talked a little bit about kind of libertarians and why they are kind of the, were they the people who said no first and then came to libertarianism or, you know, what the predisposition was? Can I ask the audience, how many people here became, you know, came to libertarian philosophy as a result of you or your loved ones being abused by some by somebody holding power, is that you know did did it happen and that was a wake up, or was it something that you just kind of figured out and went oh that's the smart idea? So how many abuse of power victims are there? <laughs> well, how, 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 well, how many how many people would consider themselves a victim of abuse of power at some point? <laughs> All right, easily answered. Thank you. Uh, So just on the domestication point earlier, uh, so there are visible markers in domestication of animals, including uh, certain reductions in in the robustness of bones, uh, reductions in in the amount of adrenal function, other things that you see. Uh, And when you compare fossil humans to modern humans, you see signs of genetic, de- genetic signs of self-domestication. Uh, 
Now, one way of thinking of that is simply that we've gotten less violent as we've found ourselves in societies where being more violent uh, results in early death. But one can always ask, you know, whether there might be other pressures going on there. But there's been a lot of speculation about literal uh, domestication, you know, self-domestication, you know, by, by a natural selection uh, and, and signs of it in human beings. And, and you brought that up. And, and that, that's actually an active thing under study by people who, uh, who you know, who, who look at this sort of stuff. Okay, good. Good comment. Uh- I, I wanted to ask you if you've encountered a bias against psychology as a field of study among the liberty community, and if so, do you think that's a problem? And if you do think it's a problem, what we psychology fans can do to correct that problem? I, um, I, don't, I don't know. I guess um, I wasn't aware of the bias, but I'm not denying that it exists. I don't know. Um, I'm a, I'm a philosopher by trade, so I don't spend that much time talking about psychology, so maybe I wouldn't know. Um, as to what you can do about it, I don't know, you know, just, uh, <laughs> tell, tell people about more interesting psychological discoveries, right? Um, I mean, my, my experience is that most people, including myself, find these psychology experiments really fascinating. I had a question real quick, or a statement. I would expect with, like, the Milgram experiment, if... The person, I mean, in that case, did they, could they actually see, see the person that uh, was, you know, under this well, learning? In the, in the original version, the person's in the other room. He did variations on it. So some of the variations involve the person being in the same room. Yeah, I would expect, and maybe I'm mistaken, that the closer, the more interpersonal contact, like instead of being a machine shock, if you actually gave somebody a taser and then remote controlled it or yep. something and forced them to actually tase them, yeah. I would expect you to get less compliance. I don't... Yeah, that's I, right, yeah. You get less compliance if the, if the victim is in the same room, less compliance if you have to actually touch the victim, um, or if the experimenter is in another room and talks to you on the phone, then there's less compliance, so you can't see if you're obeying or not. Yeah, Yeah. So, and I, I even as far as the state goes, a lot of people don't recognize that the state's violent, that tax is violent, these other things. It seems the further you disconnect the, you know, the yeah. interpersonal, the emotional thing, the more able to commit these types of crimes. Yeah. And that yeah, good point. Yeah, another, another one of the things Milgram experimented on was um, having people perform a subsidiary task. So the obedience is much higher if you're not the one directly pressing the button, but he would have like one person read the list of word pairs and another person do the shocking. So the person reading the w- list of word pairs almost always obeys. Okay, so that's much easier because you're not the one actually doing it. So, and you might draw this analogy, well, in our society, if you just vote for taxes to be raised or whatever, you vote for the government to coerce people, well, you don't have to actually do it yourself. You don't have to push the guy's hand onto the electrode yourself. Um, and you don't even have to see the people who are being coerced. So it's easier to do that. Your opinion on the breakdown of the Burkhamrel mine, uh, Julian Jaynes? Um, well, I'm not sure if it's um, brilliant or just kooky. So <laughs> I read it a long time ago when I was in college. At the time, I thought it was so fascinating. But later, I started to think, hmm, yeah, maybe this is like a kooky, crank-like thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Going back to the uh, Stockholm Syndrome, I think part of what helps you make sense of this is the belie- belief that people can, to some extent, see other people's utility functions. 
That is, I can tell the difference between you're obeying me because you're afraid I'll punish you and you're obeying me because you feel loyal to me and love me and things like that. And therefore, that there is a real advantage if you're under authority to being able to make yourself into someone loyal to that authority because that'll be recognized. Now they'll trust you and now you'll get along better. And I think a good deal of human behavior makes sense if you imagine that your utility function is written on your forehead in tone of voice, body gestures, things like that, imperfectly, yep. but written. And that therefore, it's not just it pays you to do certain things, but it pays you to feel certain things, yep. given that other people respond to, to your having those characteristics. Yeah, yeah, good point. So, and it's not just that the kidnapper wants you to obey them. The kidnapper wants you to like them or something. So, um, by the way, there's at least some reason to think that uh, if... If the Stockholm Syndrome is a defense mechanism that it's effective, um, one of the kidnappers reported that he was unable to kill any of the hostages because of the emotional bond that he had formed with them. All right, so, in fact, if, you're, if you are kidnapped, maybe you should develop Stockholm Syndrome temporarily. Um, I'm wondering, in terms of psychology, how do you think of the people that just exist around you in daily life that, you know, they're just a typical person, they do their day-to-day thing, they vote, and they have opinions on issues, maybe not too strongly one way or the other, but in terms of their responsibility for perpetuating the system we have now, it's like, I've heard arguments to the effect of the real enforcers of the system we have are really the people around you, because ultimately if everybody in society realized these guys don't have legitimate authority, their authority would just evaporate. They couldn't possibly outnumber everyone. So in reality... You know, there's not enough cops, there's not enough people to actually take out everyone. So it's the people who frown upon your thinking in daily life. And, you know, people wouldn't lock someone away in their own basement for having some weed or something. But they have no problem distancing distancing themselves from it and allowing other people to do it on their behalf. So, like, I just struggle with, in an age where there's information, like, the entire Internet is at your fingertips. Like, you have no excuse for not being educated about this stuff happening and... I'm just wondering, like, just what culpability do average people have for perpetuating yeah. what we have? Yeah, good question. So, um, I mean, you know, one thought, so you might start by thinking, so, yeah, if everyone refused to consent to the government, then the government would collapse. If we all just get together and agree that we're not sending in any more tax money, you know, in a couple of weeks, they'll be done. <laughs> uh, however, and this is the next thought, if I just decide I'm not going to send in any more tax money. Is the government going to collapse? No. I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> so, okay, now. So then I, I continue to send in my tax money. So now am I to blame? Not really, right? Because I couldn't have done anything about it. But actually the same is true of everybody. It's, I mean, it's bizarre, kind of bizarre to think, well, I mean, the collective has the power to get rid of the government, but no one has the power because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, specifically, if you vote for more status politicians, you know, then, then you should be run out of town on a rod. Or other comments or questions? Okay. Um, if there are no more questions, then it uh, looks like we're, we're done. Thanks. Standing 
And why do we back down at the critical moment Like a running away from the waves of the ocean We head for the hills with the high tide approaching As sand slips away from the castle When it's time to stand upright Why do we falter like placing our freedom on the sacrificial altar? We hold tight to our fears and defend our oppressors as we fight for their lives and become the transgressors. As pacifists transform to violent aggressors. But I'm only strange. Liberty Classroom is the premier online university for libertarian and free market thought. Take courses from your computer or while driving in your car. To sign up for Liberty Classroom, please use my special link at libertyclassroom.info. That's libertyclassroom.info. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends.